Um, my name is uh, Nick Stern. I'm a professor of economics at the LSE. I'm chairing this uh, seminar. It's a real privilege to chair this seminar. We're going to have a treat, I know. And um, let me introduce very briefly the event. This is a joint event um, of the Institute's uh, case and of the new institute the, um, on International Inequality, International Inequality Institute. This begins at midnight tonight. So they are, as it were, having a uh, pre-existence um, <laughs> co-chair with, uh, with Case. But that Institute of Interna- International Inequality is a great step forward for the school and it's um, an institute which will be co-chaired by uh, John Hills and Mike Savage and which really does bring departments together in the most constructive way around an issue of absolutely fundamental um, importance. Uh, There will be more coming pretty soon. Uh, Thomas Piketty, um, students had many, Tony's had many students, some of them better known than others, and Thomas has become one of the better known of uh, Tony's students. There's a day-long session with Thomas Piketty on the 11th of May. And there's uh, Joe Stiglitz, a very close friend of both Tony and myself, um, who will be speaking on the 19th of May. You can go to the LSE website to find out how to get tickets um, for these things. The popularity of these two gentlemen means that you uh, will have to act uh, fairly early, but uh, I don't think I need to uh, um, present to you the interest in listening to them. Now, we have two discussants um, for Tony's um, presentation, which, of course, is about his, uh, his new book, Inequality, What Can Be Done. And um, I think, Ruth, you'll be going first, correct? Uh, yeah. So Ruth Lister is Baroness uh, Lister, uh, famous to many of you really in many, many ways. But um, Child Poverty Action Group had a profound effect on public discussion. And uh, Ruth ran that. She is a professor of social policy at Loughborough. She gave a beautiful lecture, a British Academy lecture, um, a few months ago, which I had the privilege to, to listen to. So Ruth Lester will be the first of our commentators. And then Tom Clark, who's a leader writer at The Guardian and the author of a book on the recent recession and uh, inequality called Hard Times. Um, We will be moving fairly rapidly and we will be finishing at 5 to 8. There are trains to catch and question times to watch. Um, But even more important, uh, right after that, there will be a reception where you can raise a glass of wine or water, whatever is your bent, and uh, you might, with luck, in, if you can afford it, buy a copy of the book. And if you're even luckier, and uh, there won't be any charge for a signature from, um, from Tony. But uh, we'll, 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 play, we'll play the events after 5 to 8 and the reception a little bit by ear. Now, um, Tony, of course, will speak before the discussants. Uh, it's not easy to introduce Tony, and I won't... Um, go on for long. Um, He's a very special friend of mine, to put it on a personal level, who I've known for nearly 50 years. 
and looking back, he was writing on inequality before I knew him and uh, has shaped the debate on inequality more than any other person in the world. And I will just... Um, he is a, a much-valued centennial professor at the LSE. He is uh, one of ours. And, of course, he has affiliation at other places too, but we'll just dwell on his LSE affiliation as centennial professor. So all I'm going to do is to read the quote which was very kindly put on the back of the book uh, uh, from myself. Tony Atkinson has done more than anyone else in helping us to understand <clears throat> excuse me, the meaning of inequality, why it's important, how it's changed over time, and how it can be influenced. He is one of the great scholars of our time. Tony. Well, good evening to everyone, and thank you very much, Dick, for that uh, very kind introduction. Uh, as he said, I have been thinking and writing about economic inequality for a very long time, and uh, I think it's fair to say that the subject is now, today, receiving much more attention than it ever has done in that 50-odd years. Uh, I think partly or mainly perhaps because of the publication of Thomas Piketty's book, to which he just referred, The Capital in the 21st Century, there's been enormous media coverage and the subject's attracted the attention of world leaders. Now, the American president, Barack Obama, has described increasing inequality, to quote, as the defining challenge of our time. The Pope has called for governments to redistribute wealth into the poor in a new spirit of generosity. <clears throat> Christine Lagarde, head of the IMF, has declared reducing inequality to be one of her top priorities, since she sees it as uh, threatening the stability of the world economic system. But what world leaders have not said is what they would do about it. There's uh, repeated calls for equitable growth, but little clue as to how this is to be achieved. And that's the main reason that I've written this book called Inequality, What is to be Done? In fact, there seems to be a climate of gloom and doom a sense that perhaps little can be done. The most common adjective used to describe the view which Piketty gives in his book of the future is dystopian. And I gather from the dictionary that uh, dystopia, dystopia is an imaginary place where people are unhappy and usually afraid because they're not treated fairly. Well, my aim tonight is to tell a more upbeat story. The, the key message is that the present levels of economic inequality are not inevitable. We're not simply at the mercy of forces beyond our control. If we want to reduce inequality, and of course that is a big if, then there are steps that we can take. 
they're not necessarily easy and they have costs. We'd have to discard quite a number of economic and political orthodoxies. But if our leaders are serious about tackling inequality, they'll have to move outside their comfort zone and consider a wider agenda. But there are, I believe, concrete measures that can be tried if we're serious about tackling inequality. They're not necessarily ones which people will regard as straightforward. They may indeed be regarded as very radical. But at the same time, I should emphasise, I'm not seeking to go to the opposite extreme from dystopia on one side to utopia on the other side. Rather, I'm concerned with a reduction in inequality, a reduction in inequality below its current level. That is, with a direction of movement, not with the ultimate destination. And my reading of the current state of opinion is that many people do in fact agree that the present levels of economic inequality are excessive, while at the same time having probably quite different views about just how much they would like to see inequality reduced. So the book is directed at what I think is a fairly broad coalition of people, allowing the reader, as it were, to decide how far they want to go along the road described. So to make the discussion a bit more concrete, what do I mean by economic inequality? As I discuss in the book, there are many dimensions. Even restricting attention, as I'm going to do, to economic inequality, there are many things we could be looking at. One could, for example, be looking at the distribution of people's individual earnings, the gap between pay at the top and pay at the bottom. Or, as has perhaps been most prominent in the election debates about the standard of living, we may have in mind household disposable income. And this is a different concept. And on the slide, I've tried to show the stages in going from one to the other. Income is not just about pay, but also from income from investments and from transfers like pensions or child benefit. We have to add all of these up to get total income. Moreover, household income relates to everyone who lives in the household. So, for example, a vicar may not be very well paid, but if he or she is married to an investment banker, in that case the household may be quite well off. And we have to take account of the differing needs of different types of household. As one of my Oxford colleagues used to say, if you have two children, then a penny bun costs you tuppence. So what, in broad terms, is the story about household income inequality? To answer this, I'm going to show two graphs. The first graph shows the evolution of inequality since the Second World War, or broadly, my lifetime. The series marked with squares, bold squares, is a measure of overall income inequality, the Gini coefficient that summarises the extent of income differences among the whole population. 
It's a coefficient that goes from zero when everyone has the same income, allowing for differences in household size and so on, to 100% when one household scoops the whole pool. Now, this graph shows, I think, a simple and quite stark story. From the early 1960s, when the series starts, through to around 1980, the coefficient was around 25%. It went up and down a bit, but it was around that level. Then, after 1980, it begins to rise, and by roughly the end of the 1980s, it's reached the level of 35%. There's been a 10 percentage point increase in this measure of inequality. And that is big. To put it in perspective, if we try to use income tax to reduce the Gini coefficient by 10 percentage points, then we would need to raise the basic rate of income tax by 16 pence in the pound. And I think the sheer magnitude of that brings out how much over a generation we have seen inequality increase in this country. It would be... I think the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer would have to take a, take a very deep breath before going to the House of Commons and announcing income taxes going up from 20 to 36%. Now, you'll notice here that I'm taking a long view. I'm not commenting on the past few years. This is not a judgment on the coalition government. For that, I re refer you to Tom Clark's book, or to the excellent case report which John Hills and his colleagues produced recently. As they show in that book, there is much happening below the surface. And in the graph, I've shown not only the overall inequality, but also the share of the top 1%, which, and that's the triangles at the bottom, which shows that their share of total income dropped a bit in 2009, but today is basically about double what it was at the end of the 1970s. It's the top that received most attention following Thomas Piketty's book. But one of the reasons I wrote my own book is that I feel we should also be looking at the other end of the scale as well, looking at low incomes as well as high incomes. And here the record is, in a sense, slightly more encouraging, at least in this country. The poverty rate measured in relative terms has fallen from its peak in 1990 of 22% to 16% when last measured in 2012. That's a fall for which credit must clearly be given. At the same time, I think there are also two reasons for being worried. The first is that was 2012, and as the New Policy Institute today reported, of course, that was the time when many of the recent measures began to take effect, and they themselves forecast that since the ending of my graph here, those numbers have increased by at least one percentage point. In other words, the poverty trend is now upwards. And also, I think we have to bear in mind that even if that hadn't happened or hasn't happened, the poverty rate we're looking at is considerably higher than was the case in the 1960s. The Child Poverty Action Group, to which Nick has referred, and which Ruth was director, was founded in 1965 when the poverty rate was three percentage points lower than it is today. The second piece of background evidence refers 
to the international perspective. As a result of this post-1980 increase in inequality, we've moved up the international league. And, of course, it's not a league you want to be near the top in. <laughs> you can see where the UK now stands. And if we were to reduce inequality by 10 percentage points, bringing it back, as it were, to where it was a generation ago, then it would make us more like the Netherlands, a country which we have quite a lot, in fact, in common. Now, that brings me to what's happened in mainland Europe, because one of the reasons why I think I'm not totally pessimistic is that there have been periods in a number of countries and a number of times when economic inequality was reduced. And one of the most striking of these was indeed the period of the post-war decades in continental Europe. In the country I just mentioned, the Netherlands, the Gini coefficient fell by 8.5 percentage points between 1959 and 1985. In Finland, over the same period, it fell by 11 percentage points. In France and Italy, by 9. But, of course, that's an age ago. That was a, a different world. And it doesn't follow that the same things that brought about that reduction can apply today. And this brings me to the economics of inequality and the standard textbook story explaining rising inequality. Now, economists are often accused of being, as we're behind the curve, that uh, they're not uh, taking account of the way in which the world is changing before their very eyes. But in this case, this is unfair, because I think economics textbook writers were very quick to introduce an analysis of rising income inequality, and you'll find in most major textbooks an account of why supply and demand explains rising inequality. Increased inequality is due to the demand for educated workers rising faster than the supply. Forty years ago, the Dutch economist Jan Tinbergen described a race, a race between education increasing the supply and technological change biased towards demanding more and more skilled workers. And today, the story has been extended to include not just technological change, but also globalisation, which has seen the disappearance of many jobs requiring low levels of skill. And this standard textbook story is accompanied by the policy prescription that's on the lips of most policymakers and commentators. We need to invest more in education and training. Now, I fully support these calls to invest in human capital. After spending my lifetime in higher education, I could probably not do otherwise. But it's only, however, part of the story. In this talk and in the book, I want to concentrate on the other parts of the story, taking that part, as it were, as read. Now, the first way in which it's only part of the story is that these drivers of technological change and globalisation are not exogenous forces outside our control. 
Most technological advance, such as, for example, the smartphone, reflects decisions that were made by scientists, research managers, businessmen, investors, governments, consumers. The decisions that they took are influenced by economic considerations. The degree of bias in technological change, whether it favours skilled over unskilled workers or favours capital over labour, that bias is something which came about because of conscious decisions. But this raises the question as to whether we should leave this entirely to market forces. And my answer is no. The decisions that firms take all too often ignore the interests of stakeholders apart from their shareholders. A company may, and you may probably imagine which I have in mind, a company may decide to install robots in its warehouses and in developing the delivery of its goods by drones. This would reduce the demand for labour, and the company may well indeed be delighted not to have to rely on a workforce that wants to be properly treated and paid a living wage. But it seems to me this is a decision in which the, the government and society as a whole should take an active interest, and that's one of the proposals that I make in the book. After all, it is the government that has in many cases financed much of the underlying research. Just to give one example, one of the main contributors to developing the touch screen worked at the Royal Radar Establishment in Malvern. So that's the first reason why the story, I think, is more complex. The second reason that the textbook story only, is only part of it is that there are other important elements that go to make up household incomes. And I've gone back to the slide I showed you before to underline the fact that there are many forces in operation. And the three elements listed here, one, two, three, are in fact the elements which structure the proposals that I make in the book. <coughs> There are, in fact, 15 proposals. And just in case you're surreptitiously looking now at your watches to see how long I'm going to talk, I shall hasten to say that I'm, only going to, I'm not going to describe each of them in detail. Uh, I'm, in fact, going to discuss them in, in groups. They are, of course, described in detail in the book. And I suppose at one pound, roughly, a proposal, I think it's good value. <laughs> Now, I'm going to begin with the welfare state and taxation. One of the factors contributing to what I described just now, the earlier decline in post-war Europe in inequality in the post-war decades, one of the factors was the existence of a progressive income tax and the expansion of the post-war welfare state. But since 1980 there's been an unwinding of redistributive policies in many OECD countries. And that unwinding has had adverse distributional consequences. To quote the OECD Secretary-General in their report, Divided We Stand, he said, since the mid-1990s, 
the reduced redistributive capacity of tax benefit systems was sometimes the main source of widening household income inequality. Part of what is needed, therefore, to reduce inequality is to undo some, at least, of the post-1980 scaling back of the redistributive state. And this, in turn, involves raising taxes. This is not easy, but I have suggested some measures that would go to this end. The first is a return to progressive income taxation in the sense that marginal rates of income tax, that is the rate you pay on an extra pound of earnings, that those would rise steadily with income with a suggested top marginal rate of 65% on incomes above 200,000 compared to the present 45%. And this would represent a partial, not only a partial, return to the kind of rates that ruled for most of the 20th, of the 20th century. And it would be coupled with a modest shift of the burden of taxation away from earned income towards capital income by a new earned income discount. Next, there would be a major reform of wealth transfer taxation. To convert the present tax, which is one based on the amount given, to a tax based on the amount received, the amount received in the form of bequests, inheritances and gifts. This would underline the fact that the tax is one on inherited advantage. And in fact, it would only be paid if that advantage was concentrated. A donor could reduce the amount of tax paid on their estate by simply spreading it more widely amongst the people to whom he or she gives it. This is, I should say, far from a new idea. It was proposed in the 19th century by John Stuart Mill, someone who was much concerned also with individual liberty. Indeed, he regarded the uh, liberty of a citizen as being underpinned by the, to quote, the diffusion rather than the concentration of wealth. And then the last proposal is the conversion of council tax into a property tax levied as a percentage of the market value of the property. And I'll spend a few minutes on this because it's topical in view of the election and the discussion about a mansion tax, but also because it illustrates how quite large changes in tax policy can be brought about. For this, we need a little bit of history. For many years, local government in Britain was financed, as far as households are concerned, by domestic rates that were related to property values, or they were based on an ability-to-pay basis, roughly according to the value of your house. The Conservative government in the 1980s decided to replace this system with a radically different flat-rate charge that became known as the poll tax. And they justified it on the grounds that the benefit from local services was broadly proportional to the number of people living in a house. In other words, the basis of taxation was changed from an ability-to-pay basis to a benefit basis. Now, this change was highly regressive, and the tax provoked widespread opposition 
and uh, taxpayer resistance. And looking around the audience, I'm sure some of you will remember that there were riots in the streets of London. In time, the Prime Minister resigned and her successor announced that the poll tax would be abandoned and replaced by the council tax we have today. And everyone breathed a sigh of relief. They thought, well, that's dealt with that. But of course, the council tax is still highly regressive. Houses at the start of the top band are worth nearly five times as much as those at the start of the middle band, but are taxed only twice as much. Now, the poll tax is described by Ivor Crewe and Tony King in their recent book as a colossal blunder. But in fact, in terms of conservative policy, it was a great success. The final outcome was a shift in the underlying principle of local taxation from one based on ability to pay to one based on benefit. And here I'm proposing to reverse this shift. That may sound dramatic, but the outcome will be precisely what most US local governments do at the moment, taxing people on the percentage of their current property values. What about the transfer side? Here I should explain that I began life as a convinced follower of Lord Beveridge, believing that the key provision should be social insurance. That's the title of his famous plan of 1942. That, I think, we all remember. But what we've forgotten, I think, is that Beveridge categorically rejected the use of means tests as a means of restricting transfers. He felt strongly that people should be entitled to benefits, such as pensions, by virtue of their contributions, not subject to a test of income or assets. He hoped that social assistance would die away over time and be replaced by social insurance. But this did not happen. Instead, under successive governments, the means-tested sector has been expanded, most recently in the form of tax credits. This was not all bad. In the case of the UK, without the expansion of family income-tested tax credits under the Labour government, the reduction in child poverty would have been less and inequality would have been higher. Means-tested transfers are better than nothing. But the income-tested approach is inherently flawed. Not only does it generate high marginal tax rates as benefits are withdrawn and discourage people from taking work or saving, but they also fail to reach a significant minority of the intended beneficiaries. In 2010, 17% of those eligible for UK child tax credit did not receive it. 1.2 million families were not benefiting from the programme that was supposed to help them. In the United States, a quarter of those entitled to earned income tax credit are not claiming it. So I think for a sustainable long-term solution, we need to explore alternative routes. So what do I propose? I've lost the keyboard. First, I argue, for a substantial increase in child benefit, going, as you can see from today's newspapers, in a rather different direction from that appears to be envisaged. What's more, I believe that it should be paid to all families, but targeted by making it taxable. 
Here there is a complementarity with the proposed reform for income tax in that a basic rate taxpayer would get 80% of the benefit and the top taxpayer only 35% of the benefit. Child benefit is a basic income for children. And this brings me to one of the two possible routes for other benefits. The more radical is my version of a citizen's income, which is an aspiration, not, I gather, a proposal of the Green Party. But where I would depart from their proposal in that eligibility would be based not on citizenship, which I think is actually unworkable, but on participation, where that would be broadly defined to include activities in addition to employment, self-employment, other activities such as, for example, caring for children or elderly relatives. Everyone who participated in this sense in UK society would receive a basic income, a participation income, just as today everyone receives a personal tax allowance. The difference is that how much the tax allowance is worth to you depends on your income. If you're in the first part of the 40% band, then it's worth £82 a week. If you're in the basic rate band, it's worth half of that. And if your income is below the tax threshold, it's worth still less. What the participation income would do is to replace this by an equal cash amount. Everyone would get the same benefit. This sounds like a radical idea, but it's found support in the past in the United States from Nobel Prize winners in economics with very differing views, such as Milton Friedman on the right and James Tobin on the left. But it's not just taxes and spending. Nearly half the proposals made in the book are concerned with the market distribution of income. Indeed, one of the key messages is that it's not feasible to achieve a 10 percentage point reduction in overall inequality just by taxes and spending. One might, might get halfway, but the other half needs action on earnings and capital income. We cannot be intensely relaxed, I think was the expression, about what the market throws up in terms of rewards. And this means, first of all, tackling unemployment. To me, it's astonishing that this subject is so missing from the political debate here and indeed in most European countries. Some of the audience, looking around, uh, we'll see some probably, who remember the 1979 election campaign slogan of the Conservatives, one of the most successful pieces of political advertising, which said that Labour isn't working. That's why I've included this graph, to remind you that there was a time in the post-war era when unemployment was around 1%. At that time, the Prime Minister of New Zealand was reported as saying he knew all the unemployed people in his country. <laughs> and uh, being a suspicious statistician, I did check, and I discovered there were, in fact, only 55 people unemployed in New Zealand, so it's possible he did. <laughs> But I think one should compare the levels we're talking about there, when, as certainly as students, we regarded the possibility that unemployment might rise to 2.5% as horrific, 
Today, a rate of 5% seems to be regarded as a success. So what can we do? The first proposal under this heading is that the profile of unemployment should be raised by establishing an explicit target for unemployment, just as we have an official target for inflation. Simon Wren Lewis has recently proposed giving the Bank of England a dual mandate to, quote, where the objective of achieving the maximum level of employment consistent with long-term inflation stability is given as much weight as achieving the inflation target. And, of course, Mark Carney has already made a useful start in this direction by in his talking in his speeches about unemployment. But how would an ambition of reaching an unemployment target be realised? Here, I believe, there has to be a radical reconsideration. Over the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a whole succession of measures which have failed to return levels of unemployment to the kind of level we had in the 1960s. Labour market reform, as advocated by the OECD and others, has not proved the solution. The power of trade unions has been greatly curtailed. The level and coverage of unemployment benefit has been severely reduced in most countries. But we've not found it possible to keep unemployment in the UK below 5%. And now there are a number of factors, but in my view one reason is that we've focused attention almost exclusively on the supply side of the labour market and not on the demand side. And that's why in the book I spend quite a lot of time discussing the demand side and make the undoubtedly radical proposal that the government should act as, under certain conditions I spell out, as an employer of last resort. After all, if, uh, if banks are too important to fail, so I believe are our citizens. But jobs, of course, are only part of the story. The level of pay is also important, and it is a sobering thought that in the European Union as a whole, of the unemployed people who found a job, in that job, only half of them earned enough to reach the poverty line. Jobs provide only part of the answer, since in-work poverty is a major problem. And that's why I endorsed raising the national minimum wage to the level set, for example, by the living wage campaign. But what about capital? Here, I think it's important to distinguish between capital and wealth, a distinction which I think should have been drawn perhaps more clearly in Thomas Piketty's book, where capital appears in the title, but much of the analysis is in fact about wealth. Now, what do I mean by that? Put simply, wealth is now much more evenly distributed than it was, say, 100 years ago. But this does not imply that there's been a corresponding spread of the control over economic decisions associated with capital. A person with a defined contribution pension fund is the beneficiary indirectly of the dividends paid by companies whose shares are owned by the pension fund. But that person has no influence over the decisions with regard to employment or anything else taken by that company. 
the second largest holding in USS that pays my pension and probably others in the room is HSBC but I don't think even Margaret Hodge would hold me responsible for the actions of HBC's Zurich office that's why I spend some time in the book exploring the role of countervailing power in terms of rebalancing power between stakeholders and to this end there are many steps that could be taken including introducing distributional considerations into competition policy, ensuring that negotiations about things such as TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, involve workers and consumer representatives, as well as corporations, and examining whether the legislative balance in this country has swung too far against trade unions. In terms of the ownership of wealth, much of the attention following Piketty's book has been on taxing the rich. But I believe we should give us at least as much attention to increasing the wealth of small savers. That's why I proposed the reintroduction of index-linked bonds for small savers. Piketty talked about R, the rate of return, exceeding G, the rate of growth. But for many small savers... R has been less than G for quite a long time. In fact, for most of the last five years, the return to small savings in real terms has been negative. And the proposal for index-linked bonds guaranteeing at least G in excess of inflation, as indeed we used to have in this country, but has been withdrawn, would do much to help the accumulation of wealth by small savers. A step which I would think would find support on the right as well as the left of the political spectrum. Equally, there may be wide-ranging support for the proposal that the revenue from the wealth transfer tax that I talked about just now should be used to fund a minimum inheritance for all on reaching the age of 18, an idea which Julian Legrand, who's in the audience, managed to persuade the previous government to adopt, but then I'm afraid it's been abolished, the child trust funds. I think we ought to go back to that. And then there's the proposal for a sovereign wealth fund. And I, you've probably been wondering when I'm going to discuss the public finances. I'm going to discuss the public finances, however, in a slightly different way from that which is usually presented. The slide I'm going to show you doesn't show you the national debt. It shows you something else. And it's, I think, rather curious that the public discussion has focused exclusively on the national debt without considering what the state owns. It's a bit like my saying to you, well, you've got a large mortgage, and ignoring the fact that you own a large house. And what this graph does is consider both sides of the account. It's an updated one of an analysis carried out by John Hills in the 1980s, and I've showed, stolen his title. He, in turn, took it from a speech by Harold Macmillan, who criticised using the proceeds from privatisation to fund tax cuts, likening it to selling the family silver. And the graph tells a sad story. After the war, the state gradually in this country rebuilt its net worth position, and in 1979, the net worth was some 75% of national income. Since then, 
it has declined and in fact by 1997 was pretty well close to zero again. And in the book I propose that we should be concerned with the overall asset position of the state, that the state assets should be brought together in a sovereign wealth fund and fiscal policy designed to build up state net worth. Now this is not nationalisation again. A recent review of my book described me as being somehow nostalgic for the 1970s. I'm not, in fact, suggesting we should go back to that, but rather the acquisition of beneficial ownership with the medium-term goal that the state would benefit then from the rise in the share of profits that may happen as a result of macroeconomic developments. As it was put by Laura Tyson in a recent debate about the impact of technological change, she said the implications for distribution depends crucially on who owns the robots. If the state, which has after all paid for much of their development, gets a significant chunk of the profits, then the distributional outcome will be quite different. Now, I've gone rapidly through 15 proposals. Uh, there's much, as I said, the New Yorker said in an article last month that my proposals would not work in the United States. But I don't believe they are off the wall. People have, in fact, rather short memories. For example, in 1978, the US Congress passed the Humphrey-Hawkins Full Employment Act, which actually authorised the US President to form a reservoir of public jobs. Going back a bit further in American history, the Republican Senator Sherman moved his Antitrust Act, introducing competition control, because he believed, to quote from him, there was nothing more threatening than the inequality of condition of wealth. And there are conservative supporters for a sovereign wealth fund, and uh, as I note uh, on, uh, on here, there are the Premier League football teams have agreed to the living wage. Now, of course, they are, despite the supporters which I list there, these are clearly highly debatable proposals. And I've listed here some of the objections and my response to them, which you'll find in part three of the book. The book ends by asking about the way forward. This, of course, depends on what happens in a week's time. Here I've been struck by the comments of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. To quote, there appears... Does it, sorry, there does appear to be a significant difference between the two main parties in their philosophies and policies with regard to inequality. We know that Labour want to reduce it, and a little about how. We have much less sense of the extent to which the Conservatives think there is an issue to be addressed, let alone how they might go about doing it. We need, it seems to me, a debate. A debate that has been missing. As I've tried to show in the book, there is indeed much that we could discuss. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you Tony. That, that, that was absolutely s splendid in its analytical rigour and its uh, clarity. And uh, I think many of us found it very convincing. Um, 
we'll find out when we get to questions and we must uh, leave some time for questions so if we take about 15 minutes or so between our uh, two discussants that would leave us about 20 minutes for questions and we will finish at five to eight. So, Ruth, would you like to go first? Thank you very much. Well, it's a real honour to have been asked to act as a discussant tonight. Um, I think it was Tony's first book, uh, Poverty in Britain and the Reform of Social Security, which is one of the few books I've kept on my shelves from my student days. Uh, but the danger is when you broadly agree with the person who you're commenting on, uh, it could end up sounding a bit like, you know, uh, I agree with Tony, or uh, nitpicking, uh, and I'm sure I'll fall into both traps. Uh, but what I'm going to just try and do is just highlight a couple of themes which were for me particularly important, and then discuss a few of the policy proposals. And the first t- theme, which actually Tony was implicit in what Tony said this evening, but not explicit, is that inequality matters. And he makes a useful distinction in the book between instrumental and intrinsic reasons as to why it matters. And that made me kind of think it's very easy to sort of slip between the two. And and in a sense, this is a comment on myself as much as on Tony. Perhaps we've not done enough to really think through what are the intrinsic reasons. So perhaps I would push Tony, if there's time, to stress a bit why, as he argues in the book, is it an unjust why is it, to quote Tony, intrinsically inconsistent with the conception of a good society? Because, of course, some people's good societies would be highly unequal societies. Um, and the other thing that I particularly liked about and came out very strongly in his, his address today is a sense of political agency, that something can be done, and a refreshing sense of optimism And here, to misquote Gramsci, we're talking about optimism of the intellect, uh, calling on governments to show a bit of optimism of the will. And in terms of the the proposals, um, I like the call in the book uh, for a national conversation about the distribution of income. Uh, initiated, Tony suggests, by a new social and economic council which would help prepare the ground for action against inequality. Um, And I think it would be very important that such a council wasn't just the kind of the great and the good deliberating somewhere in Whitehall or in in Oxbridge or wherever, but involving people, involving having a genuine public conversation. And for me... (laughs) one of the biggest failures of New Labour was that it did not have such a national conversation. So when it did get round to redistributing, it was redistribution by stealth, and it had not prepared the ground. And therefore, it it hadn't created the political constituency to go any further. Um, And... Tony makes very clear that we need both what's now fashionably called pre-distribution as well as redistribution, and he makes clear why we need both, and that, I think, is a valuable counterbalance because I think there has been an inevitably sort of pendulum swings from perhaps too much emphasis on redistribution to all the emphasis on pre-distribution, and Tony has shown very clearly why redistribution still matters and how much scope there is still for it. Um, And in terms of just some of the the, um, particular 
proposals. In terms of pre-distribution, living wage, and, and here I'm a bit of a heretic because um, I think we had to be very careful in making the case for it not to undercut part of the case for child benefit that um, by implying that wages should uh, be determined by needs. Um, wages cannot and should not take account of family size, i.e. Uh, how many penny buns are needed to, to be fed off the wage. Um, so while I salute the achievements of the living wage campaign, I would actually prefer to be talked about decent wages linked to median, uh, uh, median wages. He also, Tony also in the book, but not this evening, talks about a pay code uh, to govern the spread of pay between top and bottom and also equal pay for work of equal value. And I think this is really important, particularly from a gendered perspective, because it raises more fundamental questions of what is it that we value. So in particular, we, we do not value care work in terms of the amount we pay for it. And uh, I would like that to be part of the national conversation. And something that Barbara Wooden raised many, many years ago, you know, how are wages um, determined? Um, from redistribution, so refreshing to have someone willing to say we should raise taxes, uh, particularly in the context of uh, what the Conservatives have been pledging this week for their legislation not to do so. Um, I think Tom's going to say a bit more about the taxation, but I, I mean, I like the idea of a more progressive income tax structure and broadening of the tax base. And I think, although I haven't sat down to work it out, that I think what you're proposing would be much better for people on universal credit than what the political, main political parties are put forward, because both my party, Labour, and the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives talk about cutting income tax for people at the bottom, but actually they're not, because people at the very bottom are below the tax threshold, and people on low wages, if they're, uh, if they're going to be claiming universal credit as well, when it finally comes in fully, will get much less benefit from it than anyone else will. And that's simply, they simply kind of refuse to acknowledge that somehow, the politicians... Uh, and that links in as well with child benefit because, of course, child benefit helps those who are too poor to pay tax. And, I, again, it's really refreshing to have someone argue the case for why child benefit is important because I feel it, gets, it really gets overlooked these days. Um, and what is forgotten is that child benefit replaced child personal tax, child tax allowances as well as family allowances and really should be seen, should not be as the Conservatives were talking about it, as part of welfare. Uh, somehow it's only for them. Um, it actually is about maintaining the tax-free income of families of children relative to those without children and should be part of this discussion about around personal tax allowances as well. So I very much uh, welcome the um, proposal to increase child benefit. I'm open to it being taxable in the context of progressive income tax structure, although I do wonder about the implications of independent taxation on that. And I agree very much with Tony on terms of part either participation income or 
I would argue, very inclusive social ins- revamped social insurance, uh, which again took account of care as a contribution. And in fact, this was something that the Commission of Social Justice argued for, but it was one of the, the few bits of our report that New Labour more or less ignored in government. So I very much hope that if Labour does form the next government under a leader who is a genuine egalitarian, he will appoint Tony as his advisor on reducing inequality, uh, be prepared to move out of his comfort zone, as Tony put it, and start the national conversation about reducing inequality to build a good society on day one. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ruth. Um, Tom Clark, please. Um, <clears throat> you say you want a revolution, sang John Lennon, before adding a characteristic barb. Well, we'd all love to see the plan. And it's, of course, enormously welcome that since the recession, after decades of not giving a hoot, the world's economic establishment has at last conceded that rising inequality just might be a bit of an issue. But when I watch David Cameron waving around the spirit level in 2009 and hear about billionaires discussing Piketty in hushed terms at um, Demos, oh, oh, sorry, Davos, I'm afraid I take a Lenonist turn. Uh, yes, you can flash around fashionable books, uh, but so long as the discussion remains at the level of generalities, what are we going... Uh, and, and, until we get specific about what we're going to do about inequality, until, in other words, there is some kind of plan then the discussion's going to be less than threatening to the have-a-lots and less than useful to the have-nots. Tony's singular achievement in this book is to set out at last roughly what a plan would have to look like. Not it's true a plan for full-on Leninist with an I this time, uh, abolition of all economic distinction, Rather, a plan to narrow the gap back to where it was a few decades ago and where it still is in in places in Northern Europe. It really shouldn't be an impossible dream. And serving in the role of both manifesto writer and IFS-style IFS checker on himself, he demonstrates convincingly how, uh, if only we made slightly different decisions on, or really quite different decisions, I should say, on, on, on tax and spending, we might get halfway there um, and uh, I don't think there's much argument about that. Um, uh, if we put up income tax to rates of up to 65%, as he suggests, and if we spent the money that we got in on giving largely flat rates amount of uh, money to people who don't have very much money at the moment, then um, th- then then inequality would go down. And he's got very neat little calculations that show how much it might have to go down. Uh, uh, but he's, as he says. Um, uh, and even an eight percentage point rise in uh, the income tax rate would only get us back halfway to the 1970s. Things have changed so much since then that that which is beyond the bounds of possibility on the political front uh, in terms of tax and spending would still um, leave us um, uh, uh, somewhere halfway between uh, the 1970s and um, now. I won't say much about the precise itinerary on the... Um, on the tax and spend uh, at least everyone would have their own idea um, but um, I would just chip in I wonder whether capital gains on first houses could be uh, a useful 
uh, a useful one to um, add to the to the list of things that might raise a bit of revenue and also close um, the wealth um, uh, gap. Um, so that's half the inequality-reducing work. Um, the other half, though, is going to have to be done through uh, disparate and heterogeneous policies on competition, on technology, on the labour market. And this is the sort of meddling, which, putting it mild, mildly, the economic mainstream is instinctively reticent about. Indeed, proposing a raft of interventions in these fields without being thrown out of court by that mainstream is extremely difficult. And that's why, to my mind, the most difficult part of the book, which is chapter three, which deals with the economics of inequality, is also the most disruptive and, in the end, the most um, rewarding. Um, Because what it does is it opens back up that narrow field in which um, those of us who've had some economics training have, 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 have grown to think that narrow field is the only area that government can act in if it wants to do something about inequality, essentially the area I was just talking about of taxing on the one hand and giving money away on the other. Um, uh, now, um, the economic students here will have heard many of the individual arguments that Tony brings to bear here before, but what they won't have done is seen them knitted together in this way before. So lots of very specific Arguments about what's wrong with uh, uh, the, the, the kind of world of perfect competition become uh, by having them uh, knitted together like this a rather more general argument. And so, with characteristic scholarship, Tony pulls together arguments from you know the best of the mainstream, often Nobel Prize winners, about when the world departs from what we might call Econ 101 textbook world. Uh, So there's models of job search in the labour market, there's monopolistic competition in in consumer products, and there's, uh, as Tony doesn't quite call it, all kinds of shenanigans in the capital and management markets. Um, And then there's um, public policy interventions and indeed private decisions about uh, which technology is going to get used in industry and who's going to benefit from that Technology, something he just quite nicely summed up in that question, who owns the robots? Put it all together, and uh, we've moved away so far, I think, from the Econ 101 textbook that, again, as Tony doesn't quite say, you may as well chuck it on the fire. Because in a second-best world where pay is not just a question of the value you add, but also what you can grab... All sorts of interventions that could have an inequality-reducing role, trade unions, technology policies, moves to cut giant corporations down to size, suddenly begin to look a bit more um, valid. Um, uh, I'm not qualified to add much to Tony's list of, of, of things uh, that, 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 that go wrong with um, perfect competition world. Um, But I would just lob in one thought. He says a lot about where working out what the the productivity, the output of a worker might be is um, uh, hard to to measure, hard to verify, and that's something that might give the employers um, a bit of a whip hand in determining what someone gets paid. But I think there are probably cases where it's not just hard to measure, but maybe hard to stand up conceptually. Um, I haven't made this up, but someone once put it to me that if you were, had four workers all holding up a tent, one pole of a tent each, and one of them walked away, 
the whole thing would collapse. So every one of them could claim that their marginal product was uh, the whole work of the of the team. It's just another reason why, if the marginal products add up to more than uh, the, the output of the of, of the um, organisation as a whole, it might be um, uh, misleading to think in terms of perfect competition world. Anyway, I love this chapter, uh, which slowly by surely by pointing out, you know that. Every margin is not going to be competed away and every resource is not going to be put to use. It discourages both the intellectual imperialism of uh, first-year microeconomics and uh, it also um, opens up economics to a much more fruitful exchange with sociology and social psychology. I say psychology because moral emotions like shame of a boss being ashamed at paying uh, his cleaner so much less than himself might come into play. Um, and that much more fruitful interdisciplinary conversation, which doesn't get rid of economics, supply and demand are still important, but there's a great um, uh, space of problems that they don't solve. And I think that's the, um, the interdisciplinary discussion that hopefully this new centre will be um, uh, one of the best places in the world to have. Um, so the achievement here is, is not rubbishing uh, the economic mainstream, but using the best bits of it to knock down the ossified distillation of the orthodoxy and replace it with something more heterodox, some new and more heterodox uh, economics, which makes it possible, I think, to hope again in new ways about how we might get inequality down. Um, Paul Samuelson said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its treaties if I can write its economic textbooks, and that came back into my mind uh, as I was reading Tony's book. Um, you know, how, how far have those textbooks narrowed what we think is possible? Now, towards the end of uh, what can be done, Tony clarifies that he is not writing a textbook. He does, however, say if he were doing one, he wouldn't start with the imaginary world of perfect competition in the product and labour markets, but instead with the real world of monopolistic competition, of hidden and hard-to-get and closely guarded information, and of markets that can bubble and um, burst. Um, seeing as he's um, produced this awesome volume in three months, uh, I wonder whether we might ask him to turn his hand to a textbook next. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Tom and Ruth. Thank you very much. Um, we've got just 15 minutes for questions. I'd like to take three at a time and to give as many as possible the opportunity. So could you keep your questions very brief and make them questions? The gentleman just here. Is there a microphone? Yes, there's a mic. Is this gentleman there? Uh, good evening. Could one argue that reducing... Could you, could, could you give your name and where you're from, please? Uh, okay. Like uh, LSE or any, anywhere, anywhere. Okay. Um, my name is Abel. I'm from the Open University. Um, Welcome. Could, yeah, good evening. Could one argue that reducing poverty is, is of greater concern than reducing inequality? Thank you. Um, uh, lady, about two-thirds... Sorry, about halfway back. The, yeah. Yes, you. Yes. 
Hi, um, <clears throat> I'm Natalia. I'm from LSE. Um, I was really intrigued by the concepts you brought up about benefits based on more than just paid labor in the traditional economy on all the productive activity that goes into it and what Ruth brought up about um, care work being undervalued. I was wondering if you have a proposal or an idea for what kind of statistics we could use to measure um, all the productive activity going into the economy. I know that there's a lot of dispute over that, but GDP and unemployment and national debt don't seem to be enough. Thank you. Um, uh, Lady just here at the end of the row. Could you describe exactly what you your mean name, by... Your name, please. Sorry, I'm, I'm Jenny. I'm a retired television person. Um, I want to know what the employer of last resort, the government as the employer of last resort, what actually means, what kind of jobs. And can I also ask, the Tories say that uh, high rates of tax um, will be avoided or they'll, the rich people will move out the country and 65% sounds very high, uh, much higher than, than what they've even criticised. Can you comment on that, please? Thank you, and thank you all three for your discipline in the questions. And you set a pattern. Uh, Tony, please. Yeah. Um, well, they're all indeed um, very interesting and rather different questions. Um, first of all, on, on the poverty and inequality, uh, as I said, one of the reasons I was writing the book was that I felt we needed to look um, particularly at what's happening at the bottom of the income distribution uh, and not just focus on the top, which is what's tended to be the case. Uh, and that drives much of what I recommended. At the same time, I think there are two reasons why the, the things are actually interconnected. And one is a kind of sort of political economy uh, concern that in a society where there's great inequality, people may therefore feel less perhaps at risk, I mean, looking at it from that point of view, or less engagement with the problems of people who are less well-off than themselves, and that becomes more extreme as the gaps become wider. And secondly, of course, many of the forces which I was talking about, which have actually driven the rise, say, in the shares of incomes at the top, those same forces have actually had the effect of reducing the employment opportunities and the wages of people at the bottom. So, for example, the way in which, uh, for instance, when, say, a hedge fund takes over a company and lays off workers, then that has certainly added to what has happened at the top and has reduced the life chances of people at the bottom. So I think the same forces are are relevant to to both of of these things. But I agree it's important to keep um, the distinction, partly because, as perhaps lies behind your question, some people uh, feel that... They're concerned about poverty, but not about inequality. And I, and I think, as it were, I, I hope there's room for them on my raft, as it were. <laughs> Secondly, on care work, I mean, I, I'm glad you raised that, partly because when I talked about participation, I was clear that it was very much in my mind. And as Ruth brought out questions about how we um, would actually define that and administer it would, would raise issues. The statistical question is a, <laughs> a very tricky one, and I'm not sure I could do it justice in, uh, at the moment. But I think, indeed... Um, I mean, I do discuss in the book, which is something which I haven't mentioned, which is the fact that the labour market now is very different from how it was in the past, and people often have a variety of activities, uh, which um, they have, as I say, sort of slivers of time. They allocate some to paid work, some to unpaid work, etc. And that's very different from a world in which we had jobs, nine to five and nothing else. So I think that there are a lot of very uh, important issues which are changing all the time and we need to look at. 
And then the third, the third question was, in fact, two questions, <laughs> which is perfectly, no, no, perfectly right, both very important. Um, I mean, I do discuss the, the, the question about how exactly the employment of last resort would work. Um, it certainly wouldn't mean that you could arrive at Dover or Heathrow as they won't get a job um, provided by the government. Um, and obviously, I was envisaging it would start, um, for example, by people who've been long-term unemployed for a certain period would be entitled. It is, of course, something which is actually embodied in the EU Youth Guarantee, which I think our government has signed up to, but as the European Union report on the British government said, they've expressed, I think they said, uh, warm, warm support but no action, uh, which is, I think, a fair summary. But I, I do, uh, I think that it's clearly something which needs articulation rather more fully than I've done now, but you'll, you'll find more discussion in the book. And then the high tax rate issue, I mean, I think, um, again, I discussed it in, in the book, there is this you know, attempts to identify what <coughs> the effect is of um, high, higher tax rates. Uh, they are extremely imprecise. Uh, that is, uh, although they come out with a figure of around 40 from the studies by the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Around that, there is uh, an enormous possible variation um, in the, the rates. Um, their own estimates suggest that the tax rate, um, the, high, the, the sort of optimal tax rate could be between 24 and 62%, which is a fairly wide range. And if you allow for slight variations on their assumptions, it comes to 46 to 74%, which is... Uh, only marginally includes George Osborne and certainly includes me. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Tony. Um, we've, we've just got time for um, three, three more questions, and uh, I'm going to take the first of the three. <laughs> and I'm, go- I'm going to, I'm going to ask. Yes, it, it, it is. It's, it's exploiting market position. Um, I was going to ask you that if you were marshalling your response to Ruth's question as to why inequality matters, and we know there are many. Um, if you were marshalling those arguments, what would be your top uh, two or three? Um, that two more questions. Um, uh, uh, just here in the front. Uh, good evening. Um, I just uh, would like to ask if uh, do you think that the technolo- technological change can uh, be a factor that can increase inequality in the sense that many um, le- the, the less skilled works can be substituted by the, by the technological, technological change and at the same time the more increasing in the technology can, demands it demands more uh, skilled uh, professions thank you and uh, uh one more. Um, this is very hard. But a lady, a lady is in the middle there. Um, yes, yes, you. I, I must apologise that this is such, it's such a uh, um, rich. It's such a rich subject that we have many questions and such a good audience. That my apologies, we couldn't take them all. Please. Uh, I'm Hisula Papalexatu, uh, LSE student. Uh, I know that in the presentation you mainly focused in the UK, but inequality has been on the rise in most EU countries, especially after uh, the eruption of the crisis. And mainly uh, the countries of the periphery are uh, experiencing uh, uh, high increasing trends, especially in Spain and Greece. And I would like to ask you whether your recommendations would be the same 
um, for Greece and Spain, given the fact that the room for maneuver is much less due to the economic circumstances. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony. All right, yes. <laughs> um, I think, well, first of all, I should say, that, and you referred to Ruth's uh, uh, discussion of that, and uh, as I should say, thank you both to Ruth and Tom for your comments. <laughs> and uh, as I make one reply to one more. Them. But on the question about the reasons why, um, I, I suppose that I'm concerned about uh, arguments which say inequality, for example, is bad for growth or, some, or is the reverse uh, as instrumental arguments because um, it seems to me these are, first of all, rather very difficult to determine uh, and I'm not myself very clear. I know what determines rates of economic growth. But also, I think if I was, that in itself wouldn't be, I think, a reason for not being concerned. Equally, if it was shown that inequality did not lead to obesity, which some people have argued it does, that wouldn't in itself be a reason why I would stop being concerned about it. On the other hand, when you talk about, when I talk about the intrinsic reasons, of course, they're usually, in, in a sense, getting back to also to final goals. And that's, in a way, what we need to discuss. And I suppose that when economists were concerned about these issues, say, 100 years ago, they were very much uh, dominated by thinking in utilitarian terms. I mean, things of the uh, utilitarianism as the dominant moral philosophy which governed all sorts of uh, intellectual activity. Today, we have a much wider variety of uh, views about social justice, uh, and I don't think I want to give you a sort of ranking, <laughs> one, two, three, uh, now, for example, just in one instance, there's Amartya Sen's capability approach, uh, which I think is very interesting um, as a way of thinking about these things. And indeed, one of the purposes of the kind of national conversation, which Ruth mentioned and I didn't, would be we would have a, a kind of discussion about these issues uh, in uh, perhaps a slightly more concrete level uh, than it takes place at the moment. On the technological change, indeed, that was... I was uh, that's really what I was discussing was the sort of textbook view of being this race between technology and education, but trying to explain that actually the the technology was something which we ourselves influenced. It wasn't uh, we can influence both sides of the equation, not just education on one side, but we can influence also the technology. I'm afraid I'm, <laughs> I can't offer a, a solution to um, the Greek uh, current problems. Uh, I'd be brave if I tried to do so. Um, and also I think it's important that, to stress that um, well, I think there are common elements across countries, but countries also differ. And the more sort of general answer is to say, I think we can learn from the differences. One thing I didn't mention, for example, is of course that there are parts of the world, particularly Latin America, where we've seen reductions in inequality, admittedly from very high levels, uh, in the last 10 years or so. So it's not a, a global phenomenon that inequality is increasing everywhere. But perhaps I could just end by saying just something about um, what I thought Tom brought up much more clearly than I did in my presentation. Uh, I was perhaps trying to do it by stealth, and he was uh, doing it uh, uh, overtly, which is indeed that there was a, a different view of economics behind what I was saying. And... I don't think it's very different from what many people are doing and the various points I cited. For example, last year's Nobel Prize went to someone who was described by the Nobel Committee as challenging the power of corporations, Jean Tirole. 
so I think that many of these elements are there. As he, in fact, Tom brought up very, very nicely to say, well, these other things are going on. What I do feel, though, is we need to bring them together. And one of the problems with economics as a discipline is at the moment, I think, that it is too dispersed that these things are not brought together. It's, uh, it's not politically incorrect to say so. It's a sort of balkanized subject where people specialize in labor markets or specialize in public economics or specialize in industrial economics. And we need to put these things together. And when we do that, I think we get a rather different view of the world and it leads one to a very different view about the opportunities for improving both efficiency and equity. Thank you, Tony. Um, it remains to, to thank Tony. If I, many, there are many people in this room, including myself, who've known Tony for a very long time, and we've come to be familiar with the tools that he uses and the values that uh, he stands for, but we never know exactly what house Tony's going to build, and that's and he's built a number, and some of us have, have benefited from the houses he has built. He's good with his hands as well as his brain. Um, but one of the joys of uh, a new book from Tony is that when you see the houses built, it, it helps you understand um, what the architecture is for and what it can achieve. And I think you brought that enlightenment to us, Tony, today and in your book, and we're all enormously grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much.